0: Hello world. Welcome to the next episode of Mr. Speaker Speaks, the show that educates, stimulates and rejuvenates the mind. How do we do it? Interactive dialogue, deep, candid conversations. Visit me on the internet at com and join the online community at vincentondemand.com where you get exclusive access to seminars, trainings, and products to help you pivot into your purpose with power and precision. Welcome again to another edition of Mr. Speaker Speaks. Today's program is brought to you in part by Program Success, your source for professional news and information, Program Success Magazine spotlights the success of individuals who have excelled in their arenas of expertise in order to inspire, encourage, and enhance the lives of others' aspiring greatness. More information is available at programsuccess.net. Program Success, the name says it all. You know, I've had the opportunity over time to interview a lot of different people, a lot of people from various industries. Today, I am blessed to have the opportunity and the pleasure to interview Bishop Robert G. Rudolph Jr., who currently serves as the Adjutant General for the Church of God in Christ. And I tell you, it is such a pleasure to have him on the show. But like always here on Mr. Speaker Speaks, we open up with a prayer, and today we will be blessed by the opening prayer from the Adjutant General of the Church of God in Christ, Bishop Rudolph.
1: Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. Father, we Come before you on today just thanking you how for how good you have been to all of us. And Father, you have been good to us in spite of our mistakes, in spite of our mishaps, and in spite of all of the things that we have been through. And even you knowing us, you still forgave us and gave us another chance. And Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity just to be alive and well during this time and just during a time of upheaval and a time of uh, pandemic. God, in the name of Jesus, we come before you with the opportunity to talk to various people from across the country and around the world. And Lord, I ask that you would just touch me as I speak and I hope that there will be something that will encourage someone now, Father, I ask that you would touch our country, touch our nation, look on the leaders of our country and our world, and strengthen us so that we can do your will. In your son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Amen. Amen. Thank you so very much, Bishop, for that. And now, our inspirational passage of scripture. Today will be coming from 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 40. Let all things be done decently and in order. Let all things be done decently and in order. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40 is our inspirational passage today. And I want you all to welcome to Mr. Speaker Speaks, Bishop Robert Rudolph Jr., who at the age of five dedicated his life to the Lord filled with the Holy Ghost. At the age of seven, he preached his first sermon while standing on a chair in the pulpit, ordained at the age of 16, and he has 33 years of pastoral experience. But guess what? That's not all. The ministry does not make the man. We are going to let him share his story today on Mr. Speaker Speaks to give us the ins and the outs of ministry and personal life, professional life, how to balance that, and from someone who holds a very high office in the Church of God in Christ. With that being said, please join me in welcoming to Mr. Speaker Speaks, Bishop Rudolph. How you doing, Bishop? Well, thank you.
1: Thank you, Pastor Edwards. I am doing fine. How are you doing? Today? I'm doing
0: wonderful. It's, just, it's, a, it's a day, you know, I, I like to have fun. You know how we, how we say in Christian. I mean, this is the day that the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad yes, in it. But I, I tell you, yes, sir. I want to start th- this off. I mean, you've had such an illustrious career, um, politics, um, you know, in the church itself. But if I were to ask your wife. To describe you right now, in three words, what would those three words be?
1: Wow! If my wife were to describe me right now, what would those three words be? Well, you definitely would have to ask her, but I would think uh, that she would say that my husband is a loving person. My husband is driven to do what God wants him to do and driven to make a difference. Uh, And then probably she would say dedicated, loving, driven, dedicated. Maybe that would be what she would would say. At least I hope that that would be uh, some of what she would say. Uh, Everybody has a different view of things. And I think that she would probably uh, say those things. Yes, sir.
0: What inspires or motivates you at the core to do all that you do?
1: The core. Well, I have always wanted to be involved in various areas of government and I guess even to the extent of politics in the church. And what motivates me is that. I know that I have to answer beyond where I am. Regardless of what I do, regardless of the accomplishments and all of the things that the Lord has blessed me to do. And the final analysis when I meet God, what really motivates me is we're all going to meet him, but I want to meet him in peace. I really want him to say, well done thy good and faithful." servant you've been faithful over a few things i'm going to make you ruler of many to me what's most important in the final analysis is that you cross the river when that time comes i want to be able to make it into uh into heaven and i don't want anything to stop me from getting there not position not status not uh, other things that people put in the way of church but I, or, or in the way of God, let me say it like that. But I want, I am motivated. That I am motivated by the fact that I want to meet Him in peace, so that everything I do every day is based upon that, and that's extremely important to me. I want to make it in the heaven. I really do.
0: So you, everything that you do is for something bigger um than this when you yes, look at Absolutely. your upbringing what was your childhood like
1: mm my childhood was very uh, i was raised in a very strict home i come from a Pentecostal holiness background and my upbringing was extremely strict there were things that we could and could not do. There, I guess I was raised in the old-fashioned sense of being raised. There was no um, back talking, if you want to call it that. Uh, we had to go to church. We had to do what we were asked to do, and very simple. Very simply put, you were. A child, and you respected your elders. You respected your your, your upbringing, and uh, there was always time for church. So we spent a lot of time in church. We spent a lot of time in um, in in a lot of things, a lot of activities that centered around family. And I do remember as a teenager, especially when I learned how to drive, I spent a lot of time driving my father to. Uh, preaching engagements my father was a district evangelist in our church and he spent a lot of time um ministering in revivals and uh, speaking engagements and so when i received my uh, drivers permit, um i traveled with him quite a bit and uh, i learned how to drive on the back roads of, of uh, the state of arkansas going to different meetings and uh, functions and the Bible meetings and things like that. So my my upbringing was definitely around the church, in and around the church and doing things like that. I I had an interest and still do interest in government and politics and I uh, got involved in that arena as well as a child. But uh, mainly uh, my upbringing Dealt with uh, being in a very, very uh, rigid, uh, strict background in a belief.
0: How did that rigidness affect you, or did it have any impact on you later in life, and you know, between the ages of 12 and 21 when you were getting into high school and then going off to college?
1: Yes, it definitely had an impact upon me because I I didn't want to bring shame to my family. I didn't want to do anything that would embarrass them or make them upset with me because, you know, I was always taught that I was a representative of the Rudolph family. I was a representative of home and um i never wanted to hurt my parents or make them be ashamed of maybe some of the decisions that i had made um and so i always tried to live a respectful life I always tried to even in college the activities that i had become I become involved in i made sure that uh that they weren't things Uh, that would uh, be embarrassing to anybody. I just wanted to do what was right. I wanted to be a good person and do good things and try to serve people and love people. But by the same token, I wanted to make sure that I was able to make my family proud and to make myself proud. I didn't want to do anything out of the ordinary. I just wanted to be able to, to go through school and um, whatever activities I was involved in, whether it was student government or the debate team and other things that I was involved in, I wanted to make sure that I did what was right and uh, tried to keep an ongoing relationship with the church and with my God. But most importantly, I wanted to be true to myself. And to me, that was extremely important during that time.
0: That That's very important that we have to do. To... Really maintain our identity and being who we were created to be with growing up in the church background, like you know, I did. And I, I will tell you, I when I turned 17, I was leaving home and I was leaving the church because we just church, 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 church. You know, that was that was me. And I went off to the University of Florida and I didn't even think about church. How did that environment affect your relationships with individuals, your friends? Because, you know, in the background that, you know, we grew up in, you know, you're a church boy, you don't do this. You're a church boy, we can't hang out with you. You're a church boy, you're gonna tell on us. How did that shape your relationships with individuals?
1: Um well let me give you this uh instance. On my first day of school, the very first day of school, um, when we were moving into the dorms and I had made that statement that once I got out of the house, I was going to do what I wanted to do. Um, I was not going to go to church. I was not going to be involved in uh, church activities. I was going to get away from the church world. And when my parents they brought me up and, uh, they, um, helped me move into the dorm. It was so funny. As soon as they left, um I guess I thought it was home free. And then there was a lady and their family. They were moving in another uh gentleman into the dorm. Down right down the hall from where I was and it was so interesting. There was this uh lady who came and she was the she was the mother of one of the one of the individuals moving into the dorm. And she looked at me and she said, uh, you're sanctified, aren't you? You're in the church, aren't you? And I'm saying to myself, how in the world did this woman know me or know anything about me? And, uh, she said, I, I don't know you, but, uh, you gotta, you gotta call on your life. And, uh, and she prayed with me. <laughs> she prayed with me. And, and that lady, uh, today, she is, uh, a district missionary in the jurisdiction now. And uh, we laugh about it every time, my first day of school. So I knew right then that I had to be careful of what I did because obviously the call was upon my life. And not only did I know it and I see it, but there were so many other people that saw it as well. And so instead of me saying, I'm not going to church, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that, um, I found myself going to church. I found myself being involved in uh, church activities, and it was—it had just become a part of my life. Mm. And when things become a part of you, what whatever is in you, it's going to come out. And you can—you <laughs> try to go to parties, you could try to go to certain functions, and you're just going to be out of place. Yeah. And so I knew right then it was kind of like the—it uh, was upon me. The, the calling was upon me, or the. Um, I couldn't get away from those things. And so instead of running from it, I just embraced it and just prayed harder that I would not um, do anything to, uh, to, to bring shame to, to the church or to myself. I, I just, Lord, you just, you just help me. And it was just a very valuable lesson that uh, people know you and, um, because of the calling on your life and because of the, um, your aura, I guess, Mm -hmm. uh, however you want to call it. Um, people know who you are and you just have to keep on doing what's right. Regardless of what's happening, you have to do what's right. Mm -hmm. It just made me think. And of course my, my parents had had some extended conversations with me before they left. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, uh, you know, just to remind me, Hey, you, you, uh, hang in there do what's right make a difference and uh, don't be swayed one
0: way or another do what's right so we're gonna go ahead and give that college so what what school was it give them some public uh pub right now where did you go to school
1: oh yes sir i uh, i went to uh henderson state university henderson state university is a college in southwest arkansas um i had i wanted to go out of state to a couple of colleges i really wanted to do that but uh I received a full debate scholarship at uh, that college and my father was very practical. <laughs> he pretty much said that, uh, you go, you don't have to put, put up all of those other catalogs. You're going to, uh, you're going to Henderson. And so, it, you know, it was, I did not choose it. I guess it was chosen <laughs> for me. In that where, where the um, money
0: was coming from, huh?
1: <laughs> there you go. There you go. He, you know, he wanted me to, get a college education and that was a full ride and, and then also my mother at the time she was uh, uh, a secretary in the school of business there mm-hmm. and um, that was just a good opportunity for me to uh, be there and uh, to get a good college education but I, I don't regret going there it's just that uh, you know how it is when you're 17 18 years old you want to get away from home most definitely and the college was only 23 miles uh, only 23 miles from where I grew up so I, you know I wasn't uh, away from home per se, um, but it was a good experience for me. It really was the four years that I was there. I'm so glad that i I, I listened and i uh, was in a situation where I did receive a, a full scholarship and uh, debated over the weekends and um, studied hard during the week and now this was before Google. This was before the internet. Uh, This was before all of the advanced research methods that we have today.
0: So So you had to do some work.
1: (laughs) I, I mean, every day, not only did I have to study, but every day I had to be in the library at least a couple of hours outside of doing homework to do research on debate topics and making sure that I was up on current events. Because you know how it goes in a debate round. Uh, or in a forensic tournament speech tournament you have to uh, know the topic whatever topic you choose you have to they give you five maybe seven minutes to prepare your remarks and then you go into the debate round or go into uh, the forensic round speech tournament and you that was just what we had to do um, and so you have to research and know what was going on our college, we didn't have graduate assistants doing the research for us. We had to research certain things, and that was just the way it was. Wow! Uh, so, but it was a good experience. Uh, but I went to Anderson State in in uh, Arkansas, Arkansas for four years, and enjoyed every minute of it. What
0: was your greatest debate?
1: My greatest debate, <laughs> hmm, I think uh, it dealt with uh, politics. It dealt with governmental systems. And, uh, one, well, let me, let me back up. The greatest debate that I had was, uh, debating, uh, against apartheid. Hmm. Because during the time that I went to undergraduate, uh, undergraduate, work, um, I was a political science major and the big thing then was protesting against apartheid, the unfair political system. Governmental system there in South Africa and all of us during that time, we were uh, huge fans and really admired Nelson Mandela. And uh, there were several protests against uh, apartheid in South Africa. Um, we had an opportunity to protest. Um, me, me and my friends, we, we protested uh, in Washington, D.C. outside of the South African embassy. Um, there were some individuals that that did protest in other areas, but the key thing is that everybody wanted to make sure that we um, let let the country know, let the world know that we were against the apartheid system of government there in South Africa, and we felt that companies that uh, invested um, in South Africa um here in America, that that uh, of course we thought that that was wrong, that was not uh, correct. And so my biggest debate and probably the most passionate debate in undergraduate uh, years, my undergraduate years, had to do with uh, debating against the apartheid system in
0: South Africa. Wow, that is very interesting. And also to see your love for politics and being in the church, how does that mesh? How do you balance or or intertwine religion and politics. How do you do it?
1: Mm. Well, I'm going to make a statement that a lot of people may or may not understand. Um, My experience with the church and my experience with politics have been very similar. Um, The systems, uh, for instance, in, in the church that I grew up in, the, um, the leadership of the church and how we respect that leadership and, and going into the protocol of, uh, of that, to me, all of that was political. Uh, when a pastor is chosen to pastor a church, uh, to me, that that's political. And, and then the black church in general is more political, more active than maybe other organizations. Um, political leaders uh, that have come into our churches, uh, They have spoken at conventions, so on and so forth. So it's a little bit different in the Black church. And I found myself having an awe of the Black church and its political leadership and leadership in general, and also in um, the secular, in uh, government. Um, It was uh, very political as well. So... I learned, and and I wouldn't say that they meshed, but because of my experiences in both, uh, it helped me to understand how those systems are done. For instance, um, when I, uh, and we'll probably talk about this later, when I had an opportunity uh, to serve uh, in the office of the presiding bishop, I was a, a student and I was an intern in the office of the presiding bishop for a couple of summers before going to college in the Church of God in Christ. And there was a gentleman there, uh, well, the presiding bishop at that time was Bishop J. Patterson, a uh, senior. And uh, his executive secretary was uh, Elder A.Z. Hall Jr., and he later became the general secretary of the National Church. And he gave me a lot of opportunities to understand government, or excuse me, to understand the governments in within the church. Um, I... Um, during that time before college, I had an opportunity to work there and learn uh, what the presiding bishop was to do and um, how to handle his schedule, how to do briefing notes uh, from presiding bishop and things like that, which later uh, helped me, uh, now helped me in the position that I'm in, in now. So I have, I've just been blessed uh, to learn both systems in both areas, whether it was in church and the leadership of the church and the politics of the church, as well as the politics in state and local state and, and national government, federal government.
0: What did you learn from being on the debate team that has helped you uh, in the area of politics in your secular life, as well as within the church? Hmm.
1: I would a more than anything to be able to gather your thoughts in a relatively short fashion and present a persuasive argument to the people or the audience that you have to speak to. That the debate team really helped me to do that because up until Um, I never debated in high school. We did not have a debate team in high school. We had a forensic squad that would go to speech tournaments, but we never had a debate team. And so when I got this full debate scholarship, I was a little uneasy, but obviously the debate coach and others saw something in me that I didn't see myself. And so when I went to debate in college, my first debate tournament was actually my first time debating in an organized um, yeah, in an organized, uh, debating, uh, um, situation, uh, other than arguing with my brothers and sisters at home. <laughs> so you
0: did, did, did you win um, those arguments at home?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, for the most part, I, I did. But, you know, I, I have never been in an organized debate, never. But in college, so my first debate tournament was actually my first time debating. And it was intimidating. Because there were students who had done that for many years and I didn't. But I learned rather quickly how to handle it and to move on with it. But debating really helped me to gather my thoughts, get them together, present a persuasive and passionate argument. And it also taught me how to look at both sides of the argument because uh, there were sometimes we had to debate for something, and then there were sometimes we had to debate against the very same thing that you debated for. So it helped me to see both sides of both sides of uh, an argument, which, which helped me. That helps me now in life.
0: Uh, being able to, you know, I was always told that there, you know, three sides to every coin heads, tails, or your story, my story, and then the side of it, the truth. So it helps you really to, to take a look at that and also your background in research, I think that's powerful because communication, um, not only just communication, but effective communication is very vital in any area of life, being able to, to um, state your point, justify your position. I recall growing up, Miss Helen Albert, oh my goodness, I did not like that lady in high school. But one thing she <laughs> one thing she did. Was she a speech teacher, I guess, or an English teacher? She was an English teacher. Five foot one okay, got it. black uh teacher from uh, FAMU. And she taught high school yeah. th- literature. And she was on point. I mean, it was old school. She would throw the eraser at you in class. Um but one thing. <laughs> that she did teach me was critical and analytical thinking because I would get on her all the time. She was like having us to read these things. And so what was the author thinking? It's like, I don't know. I wasn't there. And she would throw the, throw the eraser, right. you know, right. it's like, but she helped me to understand that no matter what your position, be able to justify it. And not only that, be able to communicate it um, effectively. So that, that's very, very important. And public speaking is something that most people don't like to do. When you left college, well, yeah, when you, when you left college, how did you actually enter into the area of politics and government in your secular career? Did you get a job right out of college?
1: Well, actually a uh, couple of years into college, there was an opportunity for me to do some political work. Um, there were two individuals that, uh, got me involved, um, in, 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 a, in a, at an early time and, and in doing college undergraduate years. Uh, the first individual was, um uh, Mr. Rodney Slater. Mr. Slater, this was before he became the Secretary of Transportation in the Clinton administration, in the Clinton White House. He, um, I was impressed with him, and um, he was very inspirational. He did a lot to encourage a lot of young people during that particular time that I can remember in pursuing careers in politics and in government. And at the time, he was an assistant to then-governor Clinton, And later he served as uh, Director of uh, Government Relations at uh, Arkansas State University, as well as a member of the Arkansas Highway Commission. And he uh, was very uh, involved in in government. And when President Clinton, or then Governor Clinton was running for president, he was one of the individuals who uh, worked with the outreach division and other areas of policy advising to the then-candidate Clinton, and uh, he, along with uh, Carol Willis, who he's uh, uh, just an inspirational person, he was a grassroots organizer for the uh, President Clinton uh, campaign, um, and, and that was uh, my birth or baptism into national politics. Up until that time, uh, my uh, my grandparents, my my uh, when I was eight or nine years old, I remember the nineteen seventy six presidential election, where President Ford was running against uh, uh, Governor Jimmy Carter. And my grandmother was a uh, a very strong Democrat, and my grandfather he was a uh, devoted uh, liberal Republican if that if there's a term. Uh, He was a big uh, Rockefeller Republican here in the state of Arkansas, Uh, Arkansas, Arkansas's uh, first Republican governor since Reconstruction was one Rockefeller, one of the sons of of John D. Rockefeller, who had moved to Arkansas. And he was what people would consider a moderate or liberal Republican. And he was very big in the civil rights of uh, African-Americans and making sure that we received equality in state government. And. Um, he was a big supporter of um, uh, Governor Rockefeller. So when I uh, when I first got involved in politics, I was licking stamps and stuff in envelopes uh, for President Gerald Ford. And my grandmother had me licking stamps and stuff in envelopes for uh, Jimmy Carter uh, at the local campaign headquarters. And so I learned both sides of the system, whether it was the Republican Party or Democratic Party, and I understood how that worked. But my baptism in outreach activities came through uh, when Clinton was running for president. And uh, uh, Mr. Rodney Slater uh, gave an opportunity to be involved in those campaigns and Carol Willis and, and others. And so when he became secretary of, of transportation, um, I learned even more uh, in, in other areas. So my, my first uh, baptism in national politics was through that. And then later on, uh, Governor, um, Clinton uh, received an opportunity to serve in Arkansas state government through Governor Clinton and Governor Tucker. And, um, Bishop Lewis Henry Ford was a big supporter of, uh, Governor Clinton, our presiding bishop was. And, uh, he and, uh, uh both uh, Bishop Ford, uh, just basically talked to then Governor Clinton and told him that I was interested in being involved in government. And next thing I know, I got an opportunity to serve in, in state government through him and Governor Tucker and a few others. And over the years, I have served four governors of Arkansas. So uh, I have been blessed uh, to do that. But all of that happened. It started my second year, third year of college, right before I became student body president and um, served in that capacity. So i have that's how I got started, and I enjoyed working with uh, political leaders at that time until now, and I'm just glad to have those experiences.
0: So what are you doing now in
1: the area of government? Um, I, I was appointed uh, by our governor to serve as a member of the Arkansas State University Board of Trustees, Arkansas State University System. Board of Trustees, which gives me give an opportunity to serve the, the almost 40,000 students within the Arkansas State University system, colleges, and institutions of, of higher education. That's where I serve today. I, I do, I serve on the board of uh, the Salvation Army um, in central Arkansas, and I try to do whatever I can in, in voter registration drives and other things. That would get, would get people involved in government, involved in politics. And whatever I can, I try to get involved in the campaign. Uh, but, but specifically I have put more emphasis upon making sure that voter registration drives are happening, um, at local communities because I think it's very important for people to understand that they have to, in order to express an opinion, you have to register and vote and then actually vote. That's extremely important. So that's that's what I do now in,
0: in in government. Do you see a lack of interest in politics um, in the black community? And if so, why do you think that exists? When you know, one of the things I remember early on in in my life when I was in the military and at basic training, I had a drill sergeant tell me, and, and he and I became friends after I got out of basic training. He said, "Vincent." You know, a lot of guys get upset with me and they want to hit me or do everything they want to do to me during basic training. But he pulled out a pen and he said, you know, they could do all that to me. But with this little instrument, I could change their lives forever. And it really got me to thinking that, you know, the pen words legislation, they mean a lot and they're important and they play a a very vital role and especially local politics. But do you think there is a lack of interest in that in the black community? And if so, your opinion as to why?
1: I think that if it is a lack of support in that area, it's due to the people being more cynical now than what they have been in the past. When you see the events of our country, when you see social unrest and upheaval in all areas of our country when you see what has occurred in our country during the transition from one administration to another. When when, when I've seen that, when you've seen that, it makes people even more cynical. And I think that might be the reason why a lot of individuals do not want to be involved in government or in politics because they feel that it really does not matter. And when you lose hope, it creates a problem. You become more and more cynical. And what I have learned is that in order for me not to lose hope, I have to continue to be involved to make a difference. Because if I don't, I will lose hope and I will not serve uh, in any form Uh, in in government or in in any way. And I just don't want to lose hope. And I I think a lot of it has to do with people being cynical, people uh, participating, being involved, and then they see that it really does not matter in some areas. And and I'm concerned about that as well. So I just hope and pray that uh, we don't have a younger generation of individuals who, feel it's worthless or it's useless to be involved at certain levels of government and in politics. I hope and pray that uh, things will happen where we will have hope. And that's what I'm trying to encourage with every young person that I see. Be involved. Don't let the system dictate to you. You dictate to the system by voting and by being involved in uh, certain activities, which will help all of us
0: in the long run you're listening to mr speaker speaks and today my guest is the adjutant general of the church of god in christ bishop robert rudolph before we move on to the the church aspect of your life i I have a couple more questions i want to ask you about this whole secular um uh secular role in politics Looking at where you are now and from your humble beginnings in politics, is there one thing you wish you would have known before you ventured off into the area of politics? And what would that be? The one thing you wish you had known before you started?
1: I think to look at things from a realistic view, and that's very hard to do when you are extremely young because you have not experienced a lot of things in life instead of thinking that it is a story or a um, uh, life happily after ever, that kind of thing, it does not always happen that way. And I think a lot of what you think politically is based upon your experiences in the past. If you grew up in a certain type of household, if you grew up in a certain type of neighborhood, if you grew up in a certain type of environment, you will have either a conservative or a more progressive view of things. And that really will dictate how you respond in certain areas. So I, I, I know that we have very little control of our backgrounds, but uh, I just wish that maybe I was exposed a little more before um making certain decisions in life that I made early on, as it relates to government and politics, I might have looked at things a little bit differently and And that's just with experience. Uh, hindsight is always 2020. When you look at the theory mm-hmm. of politics and you look at the theory of how certain things happen, and then you get into the arena and you see what actually happens, it can make you cynical. So I, I I'm, I'm very careful when you expose uh, young people to certain areas of government because people can only take certain things at certain times. If, if, if I'm making sense, what I'm, what I'm saying to you.
0: Oh yes, I, I, I believe. You know, it's, it's like you can't give a butcher knife to a baby. You know, it's <laughs> just right, they, they may help, they right. may hurt themselves. They're not ready to, to right. handle it.
1: Right. And that, that was my situation. That was definitely my situation. I was not exposed very early on. I guess somewhat sheltered. And then when the real life kicked in, I began to see there were certain things that, uh, I did not know. And it changed my view. And, and when I got into college, um, I was exposed to more academically. I was exposed to more, um, Politically, And so I responded to that. Um, and that's why I was so passionate against uh, apartheid in South Africa or any type of inequality as it relates to um, race, especially with that, because I studied civil rights movement uh, here in America and was just just so overwhelmed with what happened in this country to African-Americans, I was just so overwhelmed. And I saw it from that perspective, not only academically, but actually lived through a portion of that. And it made me just sad and I wanted to do something uh, to make a change, to make a difference. And to me, that was important. So when I was in my freshman and sophomore years of college, it was just a whole different mindset that, that I took upon myself, I guess, and, and proceed. Um, that, that really helped me to understand. So uh, again, um, I think he, when, when you get into the reality of things, it it, it changes you and, and make you, it makes you a different uh, person and makes you think, think differently. Mm-hmm.
0: One final question on this before we move into your, what you do. In the area of the Adjutant General's office, success leaves clues, is one of the things that I've been taught. And people love to share their successes in life, but very rarely do they want to share what we call failures or the lessons that they've learned uh, throughout life. But part of this show is to help inspire those who are listening. And, and looking at you from your level of office in the secular, in politics, and now as the adjutant general of the Church of God in Christ, you know, being transparent is one of the qualities of a true leader that I found to be very, very important. When you look at where you are and look back over your life, what would you consider to be one of your biggest lessons? And what did you learn from it? A lot of times I share with people that the road to success has to go through failure. Um, You have to have some disappointments in life, but when they happen, you learn from them. What is the biggest lesson that you've learned from your greatest failure?
1: I think uh, the, the best lesson I've learned from my greatest failure is that failure is not bad failure is not a bad thing you you become the finality of every experience that you've had whether that experience was good or bad and and I'm just using this from a political standpoint or a governmental standpoint um I was a reading clerk for the legislature I was a um, assistant to the governor um I was a congressional aide, and I have served in countless other um, political uh, governmental positions. And each one of them helped me to be the type of person that I needed to be, whether being director of governmental relations for a state agency, uh, whether serving in uh, a volunteer capacity politically uh, or in any other position politically. Every experience, although it might not have been considered a good experience, whether it was a failed experience, it was all experiences are good, and you need to take all of your experiences, because each one of them, they bring you to where you are today. I would not be uh, Bishop Robert G. Rudolph Jr. if I did not have some failures and some misunderstandings and some uh, situations that did not go so well because those experiences helped me to be what I am today and they also helped me to have a sense of compassion for people who are doing certain things and uh, it helps you understand why is this person the way that they are. It's because of their past experiences. Why are they so passionate about certain things? It's because of their past experiences. So I would say that my biggest uh, or greatest uh, failures have helped me to be where I am today. So don't discount any of your experiences because they make you what you are. You may not see it at the time, but I promise you, as you go forward, you will see. That it was good. The Bible tells us that all things, all things work together for good. to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. I love God. I believe that I'm called according to his purpose. And so all things work together for my good. And you have to thank God for what you have gone through in order for you to go to the future and do uh, some things that he wants you to do. Uh, later on in life. And I have learned that every experience, no matter how difficult it was, no matter how harsh it was, no matter how harsh those lessons might've been, I'm glad that I had it because it made me the person that I am today. And that is extremely important for me to share. And I want to be transparent in that I, I've made some mistakes. I've, I've done some things that I, man, I wish that I would have rethought that I wish that I would have, uh, Done that differently, but I can't. And once the door is shut, once that experience is gone, it's gone, and there's nothing that you can do. But it will help me to help somebody else for the future. And then another thing I've learned is share those experiences with others. Don't let people think that you are so up here that you cannot share an experience that you had when you were down here Mm. Um, in. in, in those things, share those experiences. One of the failures of the church in my opinion today is that people don't want to share where they've come from. Mm. They don't. We see people as bishops and supervisors and um, superintendents and, and and leaders in the church, but we don't see them when they were before they got the calling. We don't see the mistakes that they made, and and they don't share those things. But I think it's very important for us to share our testimonies of how God got us to where we are today. And you would be surprised that the majority of the leaders of the church, I think they have this testimony that uh, they had to go through certain things in order to get to where they are today.
0: That story. Important. That story is very important, and that's why I like to bring people very here on, on Mr. Speaker speaks because as, as you were as you were talking and I, and I was listening and really absorbing, what came to my mind was one of my biggest failures. Um, my degree is in management, and out of the box, um, I was working for a restaurant, and on Friday nights, you know, no call, no show, no job. Mm-hmm. And you have the ability to do that. And I had an individual that didn't show up, didn't call and anything. And they came the next day. I said, you fired, you know, you're fired. You're just, you're just gone. And I was the manager. I was in charge. Go do it. And that haunts me to this day. And that's why people say, well, you give people a lot of chances and a a lot of chances and you always forgiving. I say, yeah, let me share this story because I, I fired the individual. But not only did I fire Mm -hmm. that person, she was a single mom with a kid at home. But later on, I learned Mm -hmm. I didn't do what Covey would say, seek first to understand, then to be understood. If I would have just had a conversation, I would have understood why she wasn't able to come to work. Mm -hmm. But I fired her, and I didn't have any any thoughts about it. Hey, I'm the boss. Later on, I transitioned Mm -hmm. to state government. And I made one of the biggest mistakes ever. It was so bad. I was just like packing up my boxes, getting ready, because I knew I was going to be fired. But the bureau chief came in and said to me, he says, Vincent, we can fix this. The challenge is, and the question is, what can we do to keep it from happening again? And to this Mm. day, I'm able to still work in state government. So that failure of mine changed the way I view situations and changed the way. Yes, we have rules. We have policies. But first and foremost, look at the individual. Look at what's going on. Because I put a family by my decision Mm. at risk. And, you know, so that's one of my biggest failures. And, I'm, you know, I'm a management person. But I go the extra mile and I have compassion for people. Um, so so that's one of my many, many stories looking at where you are now in the church of God in Christ, share with us your road from preaching at an early age to where you are now, what transpired? How did you get elevated to the office of the adjutant general? And then we'll move into what that office is all about.
1: Well, I'm going to be quite honest with you, sir. Um, in my opinion, I, the Lord has blessed me to serve. And when he gave me opportunities to serve, there were no agendas. Uh, I'm serving this because I want to do this. There were, there were no agendas. When I was trying to complete undergraduate and do graduate work, um, in government, uh, I had an opportunity to be the youth pastor for Bishop D.L. uh, at the New Calvary Temple Church of God in Christ in North Little Rock, Arkansas. And Bishop Lindsay happened to be the owner of a, uh, a barbecue restaurant. And um, as one of the youth pastors and as an associate minister, not only did I work with the church, but I also worked in the restaurant, especially when uh, he would receive opportunities to uh, to, uh serve in uh, Lexington, Mississippi, at the, at the uh, Saints uh, College there in Lexington. Also, um, I worked in the restaurant. I, I worked in the restaurant in, uh, not only at his restaurant uh, there in North Little Rock while I'm trying to finish school, but also uh, going uh, to uh, the restaurant, or excuse me, uh, working in the kitchen of Mason Temple during the convocation. I, I did not uh, because I was in college, because I was trying to finish school, I did not have the money to go to the convocation for a full week uh without having some type of uh doing some kind of work. And So I would work uh, uh, during the day and then go to uh, the services at night, and I would be working in the kitchen of uh, Mason Temple during many of the, the convocations. And and one of those times I came, I was there, and uh, Bishop L. H. Ford Presiding Bishop of our church, he uh, uh, took me under his wings and gave me an opportunity uh, to do a lot of things. And he remembered me from uh, winning the national alto competition and and uh, giving me an opportunity to serve. But even before then, um, after winning that competition as a teenager, uh, Bishop J.O. Patterson Sr. ordained me as uh, he, he ordained me as an elder when I was 16 years old. And he called. Uh, he called our home, and he, had, he told my father that he wanted me to come to Memphis to be ordained. He said that the Lord had put it upon His heart for me to be an, an ordained elder. And that's uh, so how I went to Memphis. I was uh, fitted for my vestments, and uh, I was ordained there uh, in uh, in Memphis when I was 16, at His Church, at the Pentecostal Temple Institutional Church of God in Christ, there in Memphis. And one of the things that He told me is that the Lord had impressed upon his heart to give me that opportunity and that, uh, he said, I'm going to, uh, ordain you today. And I want you to stay with the church, stick with the church and serve this church. And so I did. And so uh, when, Bishop to, uh, to did. Uh, when Bishop Lindsay wanted me to serve in Lexington, I did. when Bishop Lindsay wanted me to serve, in the kitchen of Mason temple, I did. Um, I, uh, I wanted to uh, serve in the adjun- uh, excuse me. I wanted to serve in the church, and I thought it was going to be through the youth department. Uh, the bishop Lindsay, uh, uh, I went to him and, and told him I was interested in serving within the youth department. But he'd already made a decision on who was going to be the youth president, and uh, but he wanted me to serve um, as the adjutant for the jurisdiction and for his to be his personal adjutant. And uh, I, I knew very little about the agency, but I went to the National Adjuncts Academy under the leadership of uh, Bishop H. Jenkins Bell. And I learned so much about service and about order and about worship. And I fell in love with it. And that was over 30 some odd years ago and almost 30 years uh To the very beginning of that time, uh, I was appointed the Adjutant General for the Church of God in christ uh so uh that's how I got started. I got started by serving wow. i got started uh uh with a uh, an apron on and serving the saints as they came in to eat at Mason temple mm-hmm. in the kitchen um, and then I would drive my bishop to different uh meetings uh we would drive back and forth from Mississippi. We would drive to Memphis, Tennessee for different meetings that he would have, and he would take me along with him, and I would learn. Uh, And then I worked, again, in the office of the presiding bishop under the leadership of uh, Bishop J.O. Patterson, Sr., and I learned a lot uh, in working with the then-executive secretary to the presiding bishop, later the general secretary, Elder A.Z. Hall, Jr. I learned to, and watch this, watch this, uh, Pastor Edwards, I learned, uh to do a bishop's funeral program, wow. national homegoing program of a bishop. This was when I was sixteen, seventeen years old. I learned um how to handle the presiding bishop's schedule. I learned how to catalog sermons for the presiding bishop. I learned how to do briefings for the presiding bishop. And thirty years later, when I became adjutant general, that's exact those were one of the first things uh, that I did wow. um, were those duties, and did not know that, as a teenager that that is what I would be doing, so again, every experience that I have ever had in my life helps me to where I am today. the experience in the government, the experience in working in the presiding bishop's office, those types of experiences really, really helped me all total competitions. Those things really, really helped me. And, and I thought it was very interesting that when I started pastoring, my jurisdictional bishop, Bishop Lindsay, deal Lindsay, he always would let me go to the churches where the pastor had just died.
0: Hmm.
1: Isn't that interesting?
0: That's very interesting. You get he some was, hands, on. Yeah. <laughs> o- hands on OJT. OJT at the fight. Yes, sir.
1: <laughs> yes, sir. It was always where a pastor had died or there was some kind of controversial situation, and the pastor resigned. Um, and I had to go in and I had to mend fences. I had to help the people to uh, deal with the death of a leader or deal with what a leader had done upon the resignation of a leader. Um, I had to mend fences and I had to make certain that the, the will of the church or the the responsibilities of the church they were taking care of, but also I had to listen to the presiding bishop or excuse me, the jurisdictional bishop and his wishes for the church. And I was the interim pastor in several situations. It's just like being an interim bishop as adjunct general, going into different jurisdictions and being an uh, interim bishop. So again, um, all of those experiences helped me to get to where I am today. And, 30 years ago or so, when I was doing these things initially, didn't know I would be Angela General, didn't know I would be over the protocol of the National Church, but the service helped me to get to this point. And I'm, I'm just excited to look back over my shoulder now and see what God has brought me from and to know that it was a purpose for everything that the Lord blessed me to come into contact with, whether it be Bishop General Patterson, whether it was Elder A.Z. Hall, Jr., uh, whether it was serving um, under Bishop Matthew Williams, the former Adjutant General, and being his scribe, whether serving as a clerk for the General Board um, as an uh, auxiliary bishop, a jurisdictional bishop, an interim bishop, and uh, Adjutant General and uh, other areas, Assistant General Secretary all of those experiences helped me to where i am today so serving and not trying to push my way just serving and i
0: think that is in line with scripture i mean serving. Uh, they were all coming one day they wanted to be <laughs> on the right hand they wanted mm-hmm. to do everything but the greatest he's, jesus said mm-hmm. would be those who serve and so service Is the way to be elevated. And while you were talking, I could see having to deal with all those situations as interim pastor, understanding both sides of the story from being in the debate team really, really helped you out.
1: (laughs) It did. It really did. It helped me to understand what I needed to know before making final decisions. It really did.
0: Wow, I mean, this interview is is powerful, and I, I just have a few more questions for you. If you just stick around with me for a while, this is enlightening oh, and yeah, educating. Sure. You know, so you are the adjutant general, and from people yes, that sir. out there, what is that? <laughs> so a lot of people just don't know he he, the adjutant general. What is the adjutant general? What are the duties? What are the responsibilities? How important is that position within the church itself?
1: Well, the adjutant general um, is is um, the chief minister of protocol for the Church of God in Christ. And my job is to assist the presiding bishop in directing the national adjutant. The adjutancy is a group of uh, men and women who specifically serve in various areas of the church. We have roughly 3,000 or so on record, 3,000 or so national adjutants. And our responsibilities, uh, my responsibilities as the as in General, include uh, preparing uh, the consecration and installation of bishops, um, the dignified um, execution of homegoing celebrations for deceased leaders, assisting the presiding bishop in orderly conduct of national ceremonies, and just performing Other duties as assigned. And and in many cases, I have been assigned uh, as an interim bishop when a bishop has passed away. And that's a prerogative of uh, the presiding bishop and assisting uh, a general board member as they have served as um, an interim bishop. And so that's exactly what we do. The national asidency, we have a mantra which says that we sanctify the leader in the eyes of the people. We make we try to make the bishop's job easy. And uh, whether it's a death of a bishop, whether it's a consecration of a bishop, we try to make uh, the bishop's job easier. And, and my job is to serve as an advisor on protocol to the presiding bishop of our great church. And and I have enjoyed that. That has helped me to understand how our church works. And, and by the way, I think that every well minister, every member, whether they are, a lay member, or whether they are a credential holder in the church, I think everybody needs to go through the Adjutancy Academy to be trained on protocol, order, and worship. And that's what we do. That's that's the job of the Adjutancy. And and again, my job as adjunct General is to serve as the chief minister of protocol for our national church. So I spend a lot of time with the Presiding Bishop, with the office of the Presiding Bishop, and traveling and and doing other things as a presiding bishop I'd be from time to time. And then I assist the uh, members of the general board in serving uh, the leadership of our great church.
0: How important is protocol in the church? How important is it?
1: Oh, extremely important. Um, there needs to be an order. There needs to be a structure of certain things. But uh, I say that what the National agency does is we make sure that we are dignified in what we do, but also sanctified. I don't want to be so dignified that I lose the Pentecostal fervor. I want to be dignified, but I still want to be sanctified. I still want to have a Pentecostal fervor, a holiness Pentecostal fervor. That is so important. Don't just be so methodical. Uh, and, and it's good to, to do uh, things in a certain order. But don't be so orderly that you cannot allow the Holy Ghost to have his way within the service. To me, that's extremely important. So I've always tried to have a good combination of being um, dignified, but yet sanctified. Um, the the power of Pentecost. We cannot ever let the flame of Pentecost go out.
0: We we just can't do it. Yes, we are a yes, Lord, holiness church.
1: (laughs) Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Foot stomping, hand clapping, tongue Tongue. tongue talking (laughs) church. That's right. (laughs) Yes, sir.
0: Yes, indeed. When it comes to the academy, how can those who are listening, who are in the Church of God in Christ, find out more about it Um because for me, you know, I, I found out about it um, because I heard you mention it when you were here in Tallahassee once and you were actually uh, doing a class, I do believe. And so I found out about it and the importance of protocol, but where can they go to find out more about the Academy? And are there any classes coming up uh, anytime soon?
1: Oh yes, sir. Um, you can go to our website, nationaladjutancy dot org, dot org. You can go there and learn about the adjutancy, the history of the adjutancy, as well as what we do. Uh, twice a year, uh, we have trainings. The National Adjutancy Academy, once in the summer and once in the winter. This past year, because of Covid nineteen and all of the restrictions that we had, we didn't meet as a church, so we had a virtual the very first virtual academy and it was extremely, extremely successful. We reached uh 40,000 people in one week wow uh, from uh, Tuesday through Friday in a virtual setting. and it was uh it was wonderful wonderful opportunity to serve god's people and so I'm glad we were able to do that during uh, that, uh, during the pandemic. And I'm assuming that we would do the same thing this year, given the opportunity to continue in service. Um, we would continue to, uh, we would do that as well on this year. So we have those, those two academies and you can find out more information about that by going to uh, www.cogecadgency.org.
0: You mentioned the term family, family life. We're looking at what you have going on in your life from being a pastor, being the adjutant general, from being interim bishop. With all of that, how do you make the time for your family?
1: Well, I have a very understanding wife. Uh, Michelle is very understanding, and she has always been understanding in my ministerial responsibilities and career. Uh, when I got married, I was a a pastor of a congregation, and she we we got married, and the Lord blessed us, uh, and so um, it it has always been a true test of balance. Uh, we have to be able to do the church things and do all of the responsibilities with the national church and, and, my, and being a jurisdictional bishop uh, of uh, in Saint Martin. The Saint Martin or with uh, jurisdiction there in the Caribbean, and uh, being adjutant general and other responsibilities, but you, you need to take time from each other, and that's extremely important. And I have to I had to learn that because again I grew up in the church and church activities and that's all we did. Yes, but you have to come to a point where, okay, I'm not going to do church stuff right now. I'm going to watch television. I'm going to. You're
0: gonna watch TV. With my, You're gonna watch some television. Yeah, sit down.
1: <laughs> that's right. Sit down and watch television. <laughs> sit down just, to, just enjoy. I had the mess with life it because you, <laughs> that's you old know, school, I, know I know I know I know I know, uh, but but you have to enjoy life because if you don't, you won't have a balance, and that is uh that's not a good thing. And in the final analysis, uh when you come to the end of your life. And I, I hope and pray that that doesn't happen anytime soon. But when I come to the end of yes, my Lord, life, no time soon. <laughs> um, you don't. There you go. You don't know what condition that you will be in before you leave this earth, and the relationships and the uh, love that you shared with your family will show up because when it's all said and done, it's your spouse that's going to be there with you, and so you want to develop a good relationship. And what I like about Michelle, my wife, is that she likes Robert. She's not into you know, Bishop Rudolph or Pastor Rudolph. She is into, that's my husband, Robert. I'm in love with Robert. Mm. And I think when you, we genuinely love each other. We genu- genuinely care about each other. Um, this is not a political thing. You know, I'm, I'm in love with my wife and she's in love with me. And so... We help each other to do the things that we need to do for each other and, and to serve God's people. Because while I'm serving the people, she is helping me. And I hope that I am the same to her and her endeavors and what she does. So that to me, that's very important. You have to develop a relationship with your spouse, with your family, so that they'll know that uh, they are first. That, uh, you know, family comes first. I know God is is the ultimate, is the person that receives the ultimate time from us, of course. But your family needs to be uh next after God because that's extremely important. And sometimes you have to learn to slow down, smell the roses, spend time, and do what you have to do. With family, that's extremely important. Whether they're saved or unsaved, you have to spend time with family, and that's extremely important. You may not understand them; they may not fully understand you, but that's family, and you try to spend as much time mm-hmm. as you possibly can making those memories. That is extremely important, very important. I remember I had a uh, uh, meeting that I had to go to. It was a church-related meeting, and uh, my nephew he was uh, he was uh, he had a baseball game. And I called, uh, the superintendent that I was going to his meeting. I said, Hey man, my nephew has a baseball game. I'll see you later. You know, he just kind of smiled because we, we, we always talk, we're always talking about family. Mm-hmm. Um, but when push comes to shove, what do we do? We are off to church. Well, that particular day and, and a couple other times I remember several other times I remember doing exactly that. Hey, I can't come to your meeting tonight. I'm going to be at my nephew's uh, baseball game or I'm going to be at my niece's recital or I'm going to go to spend time with uh, this segment of the family. That's very important because again, um, it's very important for them to see that you do care about them and not just because it's a church related activity.
0: I agree. Very important. 100%. My, my, Pastor, Mm -hmm. late pastor, um, when I was growing up down in uh, Eastern, uh, Eastern Florida, um, when I was getting ready to enter Mm -hmm. into the ministry, he and I had a a real heart to heart because I had always loved him and talked with him um, from a very early age. And he had a candid discussion with me. It was just he and I. And he said, there's there's one thing I want to share with you. And he said to me, he says, you don't have to be to the church every time the doors open. And he said, he said that was one thing that I wish I would have known that I didn't have to be at every meeting. He didn't say forego his obligations, but he said I didn't have to be at every meeting. And he shared that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with me. Um, And it's very much in line with with what, what you're saying. And I agree totally, because at the end of the day. When you come home, <laughs> I'm just, you know this. Mister Speaker speaks. This, this Vincent speaking. Now this Mister. If Mama ain't, if Mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Not the dog, the exactly. cat, or the goldfish. Ain't nobody
1: <laughs> exactly. Yes, sir.
0: And, and so You, yes, you, you have to, um, to 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 do it. I'm almost done. I ask you for three words that your wife would use to describe you. How would you describe your wife in three words?
1: Oh, she is definitely giving, caring. She is loving. But I think most importantly, she, and this may not be a word, but she sees, she's visionary because she sees the big picture. I wanted to say the big picture. She's visionary. Mm-hmm. Um, she sees the big picture. And sometimes she sacrifices, or well, all the time, she sacrifices for me a lot for me because she knows the role that God has for me and what he wants me to do and she understands my calling and she does not interfere with that as a matter of fact she helps that she pushes that uh, and that's very important to me so she's definitely giving loving very much so vision a very much so a visionary because she sees the big picture she really does and she's very nurturing very oh, nurturing. Excellent.
0: What advice would you give to someone that's listening now that wants to pursue a, uh, a career in politics or in the ministry, and they're they're moving throughout that? What's one word of advice that you would give them?
1: I would tell them to study and really search their hearts to determine if this is, if you're going into the ministry, you've got to make sure that it is the calling that God has for you, because not everybody has the calling of being a pastor or being a bishop, but they may be called to an aspect of ministry. And one of the things that we get caught up in, it's titles within the church, And we fail to realize that you don't have to be a bishop or a pastor or a superintendent um, in order to be in ministry. You can be in ministry and helping somebody else. There is a book written, and it talks about being number one and being number two. Because there are some people that are in the background who are just as important. As individuals out front. So in ministry, not everybody's going to be uh, a pastor. Not everybody's going to be out front. There are people behind the scenes that really orchestrate a lot of things, and they have the ministry of helps. That is very important. So make sure that you're calling as far as ministry is concerned. And then dealing with politics, you really have to study government. You really have to study politics. If, this, if you want to run for public office, you don't necessarily have to study political science in college, but it sure does help. And you, would, might, you might need to put history in a lot of your studies because what has happened in the past will help you to deal with right now and in the future. So study, make sure it is your calling, and definitely talk to God each and every day. You have to do that. You you have to because in order for him to lead and guide you in the whole truth, you gotta talk to him. You have to have a relationship with him. And you can't depend upon your relationship that you have from your mother or from your father with God. But you have to have a relationship with God yourself. That is extremely Pursue a career in politics. You want to pursue a career in ministry. Make sure you're calling, but also study and prepare yourself for the calling. That's extremely important.
0: All right, getting ready to wrap it up. You know, I, I got to end on, on this note. You know, we got to talk a little bit about that one nine oh six. For full disclosure here, so uh, where did right. <laughs> what? What do you know about that black and gold?
1: <laughs> I uh I love. Um, I'm, I'm glad that I've pledged um, in college. It was something that I wanted to do. And I, uh, I pledged uh, the Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity. And all of the people that I really looked up to growing up, the people in the neighborhood, the people in schools and the educators, the people who I really looked up to in history, uh, Dr. King, Thurgood Marshall, um, and so many other individuals, Andrew Young, so many other individuals, W. B. Du Bois, other, you know, other individuals in their study. And W. B. Du Bois talked about the talented 10th and, um, that situation. And when I studied that, I thought about uh, people who were members of uh, the Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, um, and, and I, I decided that that's what I was going to do uh, in college. Uh, when I, when I was in college, I was introduced to that fraternity and, and I was impressed with the group of young men uh, that were there at that particular chapter, theta Kappa chapter at, uh, Henderson state university. And I decided to pledge the alpha phi alpha fraternity incorporated. I, I think, uh, I think it's important for us to be involved. You don't necessarily have to be involved in a Greek organization, but I think it's very important for you to be involved in an organization that helps the community that you come, uh, that you come from in this world. And the Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity has helped me to do that. I uh, served um, as the uh, member of the National Board of Directors in college. I was the assistant vice president for the Southwest region. I was blessed to win the Velvet V. Lawson Oratorical Competition, uh, the national oratorical competition for undergraduates. Um, I was blessed to do that. Um, and then just, just be a member of the fraternity. I, I will never, will never forget my pledging and, uh, uh you know, just being uh, a pledge, uh, and learning and understanding so much of the history, not only of, uh, the Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity, but the history of African-Americans everywhere. And I, I'm just glad that I, I pledged that particular uh, fraternity. Uh, it was started uh, in 1906, Cornell University.
0: It's a New in Africa, York. New York. <laughs>
1: yes, sir. Yeah. yeah, seven jewels. So seven I'm, jewels. I'm glad that I'm a part of that See. history and heritage. So yes, sir. But I, I, right. I want to encourage everybody. Yeah, well, There you go. There you go. I want to encourage everybody, especially uh, students. Uh, Our students everywhere. Um, It's just important to be involved in organizations that give back, and and that's my way of giving back uh, um, through uh, the the Alpha for Alpha fraternity.
0: All right. I have to concur with that because I pledge (laughs) the one and only fraternity from us, all (laughs) others. there you go we are there the originators go. not the duplicators can we say A-Fi-A a. spring of 1984 Theta Sigma chapter a. University of Florida watch out now <laughs> I had to end on that note watch last out. question as we get ready to bring this to a close we've talked about so much and you've uh, educated us enlightened us here's my final question to you Bishop and all that you've done when well, it's all said and done what matters most to you what
1: matters most to me well I um When you ask me that question, I think about a quote, and I'm gonna quote someone who was not an alpha, who was not uh, a member of the Church of God in Christ, who was not uh, somebody who was was an African American, but I I wanted to quote an individual who talks about being in the arena. To me, that's what's most important. And this is a uh, quote from uh, President Theodore Roosevelt. And I I love this quote, and I often say it to myself. Uh, President Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, once said, It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. Who strives violently, violently, who errs and comes short again and again because there is not effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumphs of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Theodore Roosevelt once said that in Paris, and to me, it's important to be in the arena, no matter how many mistakes that you make, no matter what you're going through, what you have dealt with in life, it's always important to be in the, the arena. It's not the critic who counts, it's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or whether the doer of deeds could have done them better. It's important for you to be in the arena. And when everything is said, when everything is done, I want people to know that uh, Brother Rudolph was in the arena. And he really tried. He tried to make a difference. He tried to feed the hungry. He tried to close the naked. He tried to do what was right. You've got to be in the, the arena. You're going to have your haters you got to have your critics, but never stop being in the arena. That's
0: very important. Got to stay in the game but to stay in it. You got to get here. Yes, Bishop. I want to thank you so very much for taking the time out of your schedule to be a guest on Mr. Speaker Speaks. It has truly been a pleasure. And I've learned so much about you and about politics and about the church. And I just want to say thank you for your service
1: thank you sir for the opportunity to be on and i hope that your listeners enjoyed it and just thank you and i look forward to spending some time doing this some other time thank you most definitely appreciate the opportunity you've given to me
0: oh it's been it's been a pleasure and listening audience you know it's about time for us to wrap it up but you've been listening to mr speaker speaks the show that educates stimulates and rejuvenates your mind remember check me out at vincenttedwards.com or join the online community at vincentondemand.com you know life is all about purpose do you know yours and all that you do be magnificent and until next time be good be blessed but most of all be a blessing to someone